The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. The GLP-1 receptor agonists. At the level of the pancreas, they promote insulin secretion, suppress glucagon secretion. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to uh, Annals on Call. This episode discusses the GLP-1 agonists. Our discussant today is, once again, Dr. Catherine Tuttle, who is an internist with uh, boards both in endocrinology and nephrology. She helped us with the SGLT2 podcast also. She has been uh, on the board of directors for the Kidney Health Initiative and shared numerous national programs including for the National Kidney Foundation, Kidney Disease Outcomes Quality Initiative for Diabetes and Chronic Kidney Disease, etc. I believe that you will enjoy this podcast. It's based upon two articles from the annals. The first is from 2016 called The Benefits and Harms of Once-Weekly Glucagon-Like Peptide 1 Receptor Agonist Treatments, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis. We have updated that with a current in the clinic that was uh, published this year on type 2 uh, diabetes. I believe that after listening to this podcast, you'll have a better understanding of uh, the GLP-1 agonists, as well as their comparison with SGLT2 receptor blockers. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Welcome back to uh, Annals on Call. Kathy, the SGLT2 episode was really educational. And I remember at the end of it, you mentioned that there's more data coming out on the GLP-1s. Being mostly an inpatient doc, I was pretty ignorant about what the GLP-1s were. So I went and read this uh, 2016 article on the benefits and harms. And then the recent In the Clinic diabetes article, which uh, says a lot of positive things about GLP-1s. So maybe we can start out by making sure that all of our listeners know what do we mean by GLP-1. Sure. So the GLP-1 receptor agonists are a class of drugs that were developed initially as antihyperglycemic agents. They work by binding the glucagon-like peptide receptor, hence their name, glucagon-like peptide receptor agonists. And at the level of the pancreas, they promote insulin secretion, suppress glucagon secretion, and at the gut, they slow transit time. So those are the mechanisms for glucose lowering. But um, similar to the SGLT2 inhibitor story, the cardiovascular outcome trials that were required by regulatory agencies after approval of new antihyperglycemic agents were another gift uh, to this field as well. That is, in the cardiovascular outcome trials, the GLP-1 receptor agonists have shown benefits to reduce MACE, 
which is major adverse cardiovascular events, usually defined as non-fatal myocardial infarction, stroke, or cardiovascular death. And I believe four-point MACE is when uh, heart failure is added. They provide benefit primarily on reducing risk of atherosclerotic events with a neutral effect on heart failure. So in that sense, they contrast with the SGLT2 inhibitors, which have a greater effect on heart failure and a lesser effect on MACE. So from a cardiovascular standpoint, this is very exciting because we have two new classes of drugs that work on different types of major cardiovascular events that incur in patients with diabetes. But as usual in the CV outcome trials, the chronic kidney disease endpoints remain secondary endpoints. And like the SGLT2 inhibitor trials, we've seen clear benefit on kidney disease. And looking overall at the cardiovascular outcome trials, there was about a 15% relative risk reduction in the kidney endpoint. And in the CV outcome trials, because the patients were selected for high CV risk, either because they'd had an atherosclerotic event or they had risk factors. They didn't pick a group that was extremely high risk for GFR decline. So the main effect they showed was reduced development of macroalbuminuria. But we know that development of albuminuria, particularly at the macroalbuminuric level, is indicator of high risk for GFR decline. So I'll stop there and pause and ask if you have any questions. Yeah, let's, let, let's go over this. What we know about the GLP-1 agonists is it slows down atherosclerosis and atherosclerotic events. It releases insulin, so therefore it decreases hemoglobin A1c. It decreases emptying. And if I remember right, these are act- at least one of them is indicated for, as a weight loss drug. And many patients do lose weight on these drugs. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. They're, they're actually more potent for weight loss than SGLT2 inhibitors. So mm-hmm. with SGLT2 inhibitors, of course, there's going to be individual variability. But typically, we see more like a one to three kilo weight loss over a year, whereas for the uh, GLP-1s, it's typically like three or more kilos. So liraglutide, which is one of the SGL, I mean, excuse me, GLP-1 receptor agonist that has uh, been studying a cardiovascular outcome trial shows enough effect on weight loss that it actually has, there's, there's a separate indication for weight loss from hyperglycemia or separate from the indication they have for cardiovascular protection. Okay, so we have that. And then the studies on renal benefits are not as directed yet as the SGLT2 inhibitors. Is that correct? Right. And I think it's more uh, absence of evidence, not evidence of absence. Right. Uh, these trials are a little earlier in the progression than the SGLT2 inhibitor trials. And the biggest one to report to date was the Rewind trial that uh, published online at Lancet the day it was presented at the American Diabetes Association meeting in June. That study basically reaffirmed the cardiovascular protective effects it was distinguished from the other studies by the size. It was over 10,000 patients, so by far the largest study. And it included more people who were in the primary prevention cohort, meaning they had risk factors but hadn't had an event. So extended the observation to even larger number of patients. So the Rewind study showed that 
the drugs reduced risk across the spectrum from primary to secondary prevention for atherosclerotic CBD. But the other thing that Rewind did is in a actually a, a post-hoc exploratory analysis, they looked at thresholds of GFR decline, 40 and 50%, and showed that even in that group, that from a kidney standpoint would be a relatively low risk group for GFR decline because they were selected for a cardiovascular profile, that they reduce risk of GFR decline, the threshold of 40% by 50%. And so that is um, very encouraging, hypothesis generating, but then it, it lines up very nicely with the study that we published about one year before in Lancet Diabetes Endocrinology, which was Award 7. And in Award 7, we actually selected people for moderate to severe CKD. So that was stages three and four. So GFR below 60, but two thirds of the patients had a GFR below 45. And we enrolled people with GFR as low as 15. And in that study, it was a direct comparator study to insulin of a lower and higher dose of dulaglutide. And the primary outcome there were glycemic outcomes. And the intention of the trial was to basically develop safer and more effective glucose lowering therapies for people with moderate to severe CKD because that's a huge unmet need. So what we showed is that the glycemic efficacy was equal to insulin glargine as basal therapy. So we had a reduction A1C of 1%, which is also much more potent than the SGLT2 inhibitors, which actually don't work well at all for glycemic control with the GFR below 45, even though they're cardio and renal protective. So the GLP-1s retain their efficacy for glucose lowering, even with very low GFR. But we pre-specified the main secondary outcomes as GFR decline and albuminuria reduction. So what we showed is in the insulin-treated group, GFR went down by about the expected amount, which was 3.3 mil per minute per 1.73 meters squared on average from a baseline of 38. But in the dulaglutide-treated groups, neither one had a significant decline over time at 0.7 mil per minute per 1.73 meters squared. And both of those were highly significantly different, P less than 001 versus insulin. And we've reported at the American Society of Nephrology meeting this year, so this is an abstract presentation, the paper is in the works, a, it was a pre-specified but exploratory analysis on events. So 40% GFR decline that I mentioned for Rewind is now accepted as a surrogate for end-stage kidney disease. So we looked at those events plus true end-stage kidney disease events, which meant dialysis transplant or sustained GFR less than 15, and we showed a 50% reduction in events. So this field is moving very rapidly based on Award 7 and Rewind in particular. There's now a clinical trial that's been started to test semaglutide, which is another agent in the group, uh, another longer acting agent given once weekly by injection for CKD. So this will be very much like the Credence trial, patients with GFR below 60 and urine albumin to creatinine ratio greater than 200, so a little lower threshold for albuminuria than in Credence. Credence uh, required 300. And they're being randomized to uh, semaglutide versus placebo with the primary outcome being the major kidney events that is a 40% decline in stage kidney disease or death attributed to kidney disease. 
I have a lot of questions. Let's first go over the route of administration because sure. if I remember right, we started out with daily or twice daily injections, then we had weekly injections, and now we have the first oral GLP-1 agonist. What are the pros and cons of those, and what do we know about the newer oral one? Because so many patients don't want to be having injections that they don't have to. Sure. So to your point about injections, from a patient burden standpoint, the weekly injections, of course, are preferable to daily injections. What I'll tell you from doing Award 7, I was the study-wide PI, but also a site PI, is that the patients really appreciated the once-a-week injection versus the daily insulin injections. The other thing that they liked is that there's no dose adjustment as opposed to insulin. It's just a standard dose. So there was a great patient acceptance of the once-weekly injection. The latest development is the oral semaglutide, again, another drug in the class, which is available both by injection and oral. My reflection on that is that some patients prefer an oral therapy, but when we think about our patients with CKD, they're on multiple oral medications. So just as a point of reference in my own clinic, which is highly enriched in people with type 2 diabetes and advanced stages of CKD, their problem list is usually 10 to 15 and the number of medicines you can multiply by one to one and a half times that. So there's a huge pill burden every day. And there are some patients who'd prefer a once-weekly injection with, with no dose adjustment. So I think there on the oral versus the injection, that's going to be really specific to an individual patient and their values and preferences. So with the patients that I see, oftentimes they'd rather take another injection just once a week than a another pill every day. But again, that's going to vary depending on your population and the kind of patients that you're treating. Well, that's great. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm clear. And if I'm not clear, then perhaps the listeners aren't clear. This is for type 2 diabetes. Is that correct? At this point, yes, right? But the, and again, this would be in the realm of research, but I think we're going to be seeing a move toward testing these agents in type 1 like we have with the SGLT2 inhibitors. SGLT2 inhibitors aren't going to do much for glycemic control in a type 1 diabetic patient, but they may provide organ protection, heart or kidney protection, and that's now being tested at least in the IMPA kidney study. With regard to the GLP-1s, these drugs may uh, actually provide some glycemic lowering in type 1 because of their effects on gastric transit and to suppress glucagon, but that is an area of active investigation and it's not currently indicated. I could certainly imagine a scenario where they are tested for organ protection irrespective of glycemic control in type 1s as well. That's research. That's the future. Currently, the indication is strictly for type 2. But that's based on glycemic efficacy and safety and the clinical trials that have been done to date. And given the latest data on SGLT2s, protection against progressive heart failure, even in non-patients without diabetes, we have to wonder what are all these mechanisms that are going on? Uh, is or Do we really have a pleiotropic effect of these medications? I think that really is the working hypothesis. So if we walk back to the SGLT2 inhibitors, both for heart failure and for 
chronic kidney disease and diabetes, the effects really appear to be largely independent of glycemic control. Uh, the study you're referring to in uh, heart failure was the DAPA-HF trial. So it was conducted in diabetic and non-diabetic patients alike. And irrespective of diabetes status, there was essentially equal benefit. Credence has just reported out the effect on the primary kidney disease outcome, which again was in that case, doubling of creatinine in stage kidney disease, death due to kidney or cardiovascular disease, and heart failure, a combined endpoint. But it didn't matter the level of glycemic control. So even people who had high A1Cs, which we're, I'm not advocating for, but even if the agent didn't lower the glucose, they still had similar protection. So we are, in a sense, retrofitting the science because the initial observations of organ protection, if I can use that sort of umbrella term to describe the cardiovascular and kidney protective effects, were a surprise at the time they came out. It really wasn't the area where the fields of heart failure and kidney failure were focused. So we're, we're now working backwards. In a way, though, to me, that's really interesting and, and perhaps the best way to do the science is we should be trying to understand the science from a clinical perspective and use those models to help us understand the clinical observations so that we can bring them back to the clinic. Mice have not turned out to be good models of either heart failure or kidney failure, but they could be useful to unravel mechanisms from based on clinical observations. So that said, you know, with regard to the kidney effect of the SGLT2, a large part of it's hemodynamic, but there may be other metabolic effects, same from the cardiovascular side. I think going to the GLP-1s, they're very different mechanisms, but similarly, the initial organ protective effects that were described in the CVOTs were a surprise, so we're working backwards, but they tend to be more anti-atherosclerotic and to date, the available experimental models suggest that the effects are primarily anti-inflammatory and antifibrotic. The GLP-1 receptor activation in the non-pancreatic tissues, so for example, in vascular uh, smooth muscle cells, arguably in some cells in the kidney, reduce increased production of oxidative molecules and have direct anti-inflammatory effects. So that's also really intriguing from the standpoint of future therapeutic development because the effects are quite different from SGLT2s. Another area where I see future research going is even looking at combinations of these agents from both a cardiovascular and a kidney protective effect um, because we get a lot more anti-atherosclerotic effect with the GLP-1s, but much more heart failure benefit with the SGLT-2s. So conceivably, they could be complementary in terms of reducing cardiovascular risk in diabetes, but perhaps in non-diabetic patients as well. And then the same story could be told for the kidney disease that they're likely working by different yet complementary uh, mechanisms that could provide additional um, kidney protection as well. Well, now we've heard uh, the good, and uh, you know that I'm. Oh yeah, I, I'm always <laughs> I'm always into the good, bad, and the ugly. So, yep. What are the side effects? Uh, and I think we all need to always be aware of side effects of medications, and these medications are not free of side effects. Right, and they're very different from the SGLT2 inhibitor side effects. Um, the main side effect that has been seen across the trials are actually the gastrointestinal side effects, which is predictable based on the way the drugs work. Nausea, vomiting, constipation, but 
paradoxically, even though they slow transit, some people have diarrhea. Those effects, so from a practical standpoint, if I may, can be mitigated by starting with low dose, waiting four to six weeks, coaching people through that initial phase because they develop a tolerance typically. So what I will usually do is start with the lowest dose of an agent, go about a month or six weeks, see the patient again. If they're doing well, then go ahead and increase the dose and coach them through another period. And after about three months, the side effects tend to abate. If they don't, then I go back to the lower dose, but it can be managed. So that's the main side effect. The other thing is that through a completely different mechanism, they can cause a naturesis. So watch for volume depletion. If a patient is also on a diuretic, I wouldn't recommend reducing or stopping the diuretic before starting the agent, but see that person back again soon within a couple of weeks or a month, and if necessary, adjust the diuretic dose. So those are really the two main side effects. They've actually um, been remarkably well tolerated, no increased risk of pancreatitis or um, any malignancies. In the preclinical models, there were some rodents that developed medullary thyroid cancer, but that's been very carefully uh, assessed in the clinical trials, and there's been no evidence of, of that occurring in humans to date. Well, what about hypoglycemia? Get a little nervous when we were suppressing glucagon. Using the agents as the single drug for treatment of hyperglycemia Inherently, they are not associated with hypoglycemia, only when combined with other agents that increase insulin, like exogenous insulin or sulfonylureas. So in fact, in the AWARD-7 study that I mentioned, even in, a, in moderate to severe CKD, remember the mean GFR was 38, where we have a very high risk of hypoglycemia, we had a 50% reduction in hypoglycemic events compared to insulin glargine. So they're at, in patients with low GFR, they're actually associated with a lower risk of hypoglycemia. And we did allow patients to take prandial insulin based on their self-monitoring if needed. So they weren't completely insulin-free and in that they could occasionally take short-acting insulin. So from a hypoglycemic standpoint, they're actually safer, but as a practical matter, if a patient is on insulin or sulfonylurea or miglinotide, if you use those agents, then with adding a GLP-1, uh, patients do need to be cautioned about uh, hypoglycemia and management of it. Unfortunately, these are not inexpensive drugs. What, what, what is your experience with uh, the finances of these drugs in your patients? In the United States, <laughs> where drugs are often more expensive than the rest of the world, that, that is a barrier really for both of the new classes of agents. This is very much a moving target, especially for the SGLT2 inhibitors, which received an indication to treat diabetic kidney disease on September 30th, at least Canada flows and did. And now the heart failure data is also very compelling. So what I'm seeing in where I work and, and in the clinic that I work is we're, we're getting fewer insurance denials for SGLT2s. I'm seeing the same thing for GLP-1s. They have been hard to access until recently, but based on the data that I mentioned, I will occasionally get a denial, but we're now starting to see more approvals. But that said, they're still very expensive no matter who's paying for them, and it's a cost to someone. So I guess I'm hopeful that we'll see some reduction in prices, although the story with insulin has been so 
concerning about prices that um, this is this is a major issue, and I I think it probably have to be dealt with at a policy level because there are many patients who may benefit in the long run, but you know we've had sort of a short-term time horizon in looking at costs. And so that is a big issue to grapple with. So my personal feeling is that from a, almost from a social justice standpoint, we should be able to provide access to life-saving therapies for patients who need it, how, however we get there. We certainly do for other health conditions. And it, it's time that diabetes and diabetic kidney disease are considered among those compelling reasons to provide coverage for patients. At least it, with good RX, it looked like most most of the GLP ones were about to touch a thousand dollars a month. Yeah, that sounds right. And that that's pretty expensive. Let's let's finish up by going to your office and patients come in who have type two diabetes. They have some early kidney disease. They might be at risk for heart disease or have heart disease. Can you compare and contrast? who you start with an SGLT2 and who you start with a GLP and why. Sure. And I'm going to walk back to some guidelines and then work from there. So both the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, which is their professional organization, and the American Diabetes Association have recommended either an SGLT2 or a GLP1 as the second agent after metformin for reduction of cardiovascular risk and in patients who can't take one or the other, then consider the opposite. So let's say as a patient who has a GFR of 30 at the present time would not be eligible to take an SGLT2 inhibitor, but could take a GLP-1. Or there might be a person who you put on a GLP-1, they have GI side effects, and you may switch them to an SGLT-2. So I think that's going to develop more granularity along the lines of the different profiles, but that's the current recommendation. The European Society of Cardiology this fall, after the DAPA heart failure um, study, has already come out with a recommendation for SGLT2 inhibitors for heart failure, irrespective of metformin use. So again, not all guidelines are aligning. And of course, our own American organizations, ACC and AHA, I know are actively working on this issue, but haven't said anything yet. If we consider, I guess, the established guidelines. For patients with type 2 diabetes, again, metformin should be our go-to first drug. However, again, if the GFR is below 30, we're not going to use metformin. Or if it's between 30 and 45, we're not going to start it. If they're on it, we'll reevaluate whether they should stay on it. So that said, then the next drug should be an SGLT2 or GLP-1 for organ protection. My personal approach is a person who has more of a heart failure phenotype, where I consider that the greatest risk, I'm going to go to SGLT2 inhibitors first. Patient who has more of an atherosclerotic disease risk, to my assessment, I'm going to go with the GLP-1 receptor agonist first. And that's assuming the cost is not an issue. Just based on clinical findings. And then I think for CKD, that's a tougher one. Um, again, if the GFR is uh, above 45 or above 30 now for canagliflozin, we can give an SGLT2 for albuminuria over 300 and GFR between 30 and 60. I think as the other agents' trials are conducted, uh, assuming this is a class effect, we'll see some shifts there. They're also studying some lower GFRs. Again, the GLP-1s, though, can be beneficial because we can use them down to a GFR of 15. 
And the emerging data, especially from Award 7, which was the study done in moderate to severe CKD, and then Rewind strongly suggests that these are likely to prevent GFR decline as well. Well, Kathy, I cannot thank you enough for really clarifying so many issues. And I think it was really nice the way you focused on the GLP-1s, but contrasted the different areas where SGLT-2s overlap and sort of gave us a way to follow the literature. And that's what I really appreciate is we sort of know where we are now, but you gave us a glimpse into what will be coming down the road that we need to keep up with. So this has been a great conversation. Once again, I thank you so much for joining our podcast. Well, thank you for including me. It's always such a pleasure. And I enjoy talking to this virtual audience too. I imagine them in clinic and I hope that these discussions will be beneficial to all of you who go to your clinic and are thinking about how you're uh, continuing to improve care of patients with type 2 diabetes and reducing their cardiovascular and kidney disease risks. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This interesting discussion gave us a better understanding of the glucagon-like peptide 1 agonists. This is a very interesting group of drugs for diabetes that traditionally have been used by injection, uh, first daily and more recently once weekly. There's now an oral agent also. These agents are quite expensive at about $1,000 per month, but very effective in lowering hemoglobin A1c in helping patients lose weight because of their side effect of decreased gastric emptying, and who also appear to have some positive impact on coronary artery disease and renal disease. I think a very important part of this discussion was the comparison of when we might want to use the GLP-1 agonists as compared to the SGLT-2 receptor blockers. This conversation and the previous one, SGLT-2s, has expanded my knowledge of the treatments for uh, type 2 diabetes and helped me understand the very positive unintended consequences of these drugs on the heart and the kidneys. I hope that you have enjoyed listening to this, and thanks for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.